So, I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests involved in writing and publishing. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like getting to listen to the show a week early. And if you're not one already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. As an author and a reader, my interests include science fiction, alternate history, fantasy fiction, game design. Well, author Charles E. Gannon has written them all. So you better believe when I got the opportunity to speak with him, I leapt on it. His most recent publication is Into the Vortex, the second in his first ever fantasy serial, The Vortex of Worlds series. So of course we talked about that, but Charles has the kind of mind that travels far and absorbs everything, so I think anybody listening will get to learn something of interest in them. Alright, let's go talk to Chuck. Here we are with Chuck. Hey, man. Hi. How are you doing, Oliver? Very well. And uh, yeah, I'm already enjoying myself just from chatting before we hit record. So hey, I think we're off to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> I like to do this from the angle of like, in case you know people aren't familiar with you, even though I'm sure we have some very dedicated fans who've tuned in. So why don't we start real early? You know, if I remember correctly, at a very young age, you started wanting to be a paleontologist. Oh God, you, you, man, you've done your research. Yeah, paleontologist, and then I wanted to be a zoologist, and then I wanted to be an astronomer, and then I wanted to be an astronaut. Oh, that was too dangerous, so backed <laughs> off of that. But I real, but all the way through it was, I want to be X and write about it, and I want to be Y and write about it. And then at age twelve, I realized, geez, I guess what I want to do is know about cool stuff and write about it. But I didn't actually want to do the cool stuff because at about the same age, I started realizing 98% of the time spent in those careers, almost any high, you know, cutting edge science career is just, it's, there's a lot of isolation and it's not the isolation of a writer because when I'm writing, I don't feel isolated. I feel like I'm living in a world, you know, I feel like I'm channeling almost what it is that's the, the, the theater of the mind that's going on between my ears. Whereas sitting in an environment where it's like, okay, here's, here's iteration of test 973. Nope, 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 nope. Not for me. Next test. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Not for me. Not for me. Do you feel like maybe, you know, part of the reason say paleontology appealed was that it would be, I mean, I know it's not Indiana Jones, obviously, but you know, you, you would get out in the field, you know, did you, did you find that sciences where you would get to be a, essentially a scientific man of action dream or? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I was three. And I think the thing about, I just had, I, I had that, that fascination. I think that a lot of very little kids have with, with dinosaurs. I mean, their size their and, and let's face it, they really, yeah, they're this planet, but it's really like looking at another world. And for me, that had an appeal. 
I can't remember a time when that did not have a huge appeal. So I think that's really what pulled me to it. And and then again, it's the same sort of thing. It's like when you get into the world of animals and you start even as a as a like a seven year old and you start realizing how different their lives are and how different, you know, and then you start thinking about, you know, uh, evolution, uh, which I understood the basic principles of, but I certainly wasn't ready to take a class in it. Um, and the same thing with astronomy. I mean, always there was this idea of, I want to know what's over the next hill. Yeah, That's yeah. what's really important to me. And so I hit upon this career that allows me to do that professionally. Well, yeah, and, and I can't help but feel a wee bit of kinship with you because at a young age, I too was powerfully drawn to the sciences, went to all the museums, science centers, that kind of thing. Dinosaurs, of course, of course, the classic gateway drug, um, you know, baking yeah. soda, volcanoes, et cetera. Uh, yet ultimately, I got an English degree and focused my adult life on writing. How did mm -hmm. you end up going from your own science-focused youth to getting master's degrees in like English and communications yeah. rather than, say, paleontology-related ones uh, and, and uh, going down that path? Because, because... I guess you could say the the reason is that the sciences themselves, <laughs> um, when I had learned, you know, one of the things, so so this is going to, for forgive me for, for backing into it this way, but I don't so much feel that I chose this career as it chose me. And what I mean by that is I would, I, I, I stayed with the dinosaurs until I felt I had a picture of that world. Any deeper than that didn't really, didn't really uh, resonate with me. Same on a whole lot of levels. Now, as you get older, you realize that there's more to that world. And of course, we've learned a lot more since then. So I would say that, that uh, it's not just a matter of skipping along the, the sort of um, the colorful wave tops of a field, certainly, but it was then. But what yeah. I always wanted to do was tell stories about it. I always wanted to think about, well, what would it be like to be there? You know, and that was, that has been the motivation and the driver ever since. So it, so the, the reason I'm going into this is because I really didn't have to, there was never, there was never a strong direction to actually okay. pursue the sciences in, for their, for their, in a deep fashion. It was always in service of what I would now call story research. And, uh, and, and so really I was just doing the part of writing that I could do more effectively before I really knew how to write. Um, but it was, that was, you know, like I say, I kind of think it chose me as much as I chose it. I like it. I like it very much. Yeah. That moment of realization at some point in your youth where you're like, you know, I think it's less about understanding the raw materials and more what I want to do with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, just turning the universe into your plaything, which of course now because we're talking so much about childhood, I'm just remembering me playing with my dinosaur action figures, but that's something else altogether. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask you something I've wondered about a few authors, particularly when reading um, their hard science fiction or alternate mm -hmm. history fiction, which really gets into you know the details of the history that is being altered. Um, would you say your academic experiences and writing fed all into your prose fiction writing style? Uh, man, certainly, I hope not the style. Um, I, I will say that there are, it allows me to write passages, whether that is from a narrative sort of third person or a, um, 
or from an individual who is scholarly, it gives me, uh, I think, an aperture into not just the feel of that world in terms of the way the minds work, but also the way they tend to express themselves, organize their thoughts, things like that. Um, I, I, I would, I would, this is going to sound strange, but I would attribute as much to pen and paper, pencil and paper role-playing games as my career in academia as the basis of the kind of research I do. Because the research for me, you know, in academia, the, I, I I'm going to piss off a bunch of academics out there, but you know, guys live with okay. it and gals live with it. Um, <laughs> the, the, there's a very strong, a, a very strong motivation to be right. When you're looking, I have never been so concerned with that. I couldn't get behind a thesis or a theory to the extent that I was willing to, to sort of do anything I had to do to get that out there and get that be to, to be the sort of the, the dominant narrative or the dominant perspective on any particular item. Uh, that I was ever interested in, because quite frankly, I, I'm a real believer, you know, I remember the first time I, 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 I read, I think it's, I think it's Socrates, uh, you know, the more I know, the more I know, I don't know. And that, uh, it, and if it wasn't Socrates, then I, then probably reading a book and footnoted to some other Greek of that time <laughs> or that long period of time who wrote such things. Um, and, and so there's a part of me that, that, um, I'm too committed, I guess you would say, to interrogating the world to be able to actually sit and say, and this is how this piece of the world works, because the Koreans have that saying, you see from where you sit. Mm. Well, you know, you can look at almost any contention about the world and say that that's just one seat. It may be, it may give you the best view that we have on anything at the given moment, but that doesn't mean you're seeing the whole picture. I mean, that's kind of what cubism is about. Go behind the object, but unfold it and show the artifice of the notion of complete understanding, complete comprehension. You can't be behind the, the object that's on the canvas unless you fold it into the canvas, at which point it's no longer really the object that was there. It is your attempt to represent it. And so, so I would say I, I don't have the right the right determined impulse. My determined impulse is never tell me I can't ask why. <laughs> if you tell me I can't ask why, now you're going to get, now you're going to find the one place where I'm probably um, uh, extremely resolute. <laughs> well, fair enough. Although I, I gotta say, I love that answer. And uh, you know, what you mentioned there, the, you see from where you sit, that certainly sounds like a good thing to have resting in your head while writing, especially uh, when you have like a large ensemble cast, if you're telling like a grand space opera, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, how do you find it when you're, you know, when we, when we dodge a little bit to the side here and talk about, you know, seeing from where you sit, uh, how do you get yourself in the headspace of a character and avoid kind of almost wall off the rest of your knowledge as God of your book to really get into the head of this one person and, and have find that different from the other character maybe you were writing in the previous chapter. So I'm going to, uh, first of all, I want to put a footnote next to that I'm God. I'm oh, in well, charge. Well, of your book. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I understand that. No, but I mean of anything. Um, there's okay. a, that's a footnote that I want to come back to because it has to do with the way I approach what I write. 
Um, but in terms of getting into somebody's head, that's one of the easiest things for me to do. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, usually I'm, you know, that's, uh, my, the thing I have to be most careful about where I am more likely to, to write long than any place else is, uh, it was what I would call deep levels of consciousness where, you know, you, you, you think about, for instance, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, the, uh, I don't know, was it? I forget the name of the French uh, director who did Ambrose Bierce's uh, incident at, at Owl Creek Bridge, I think it was. And it's, a, it's, um, it's this story of a guy who's getting hung. Mm. And he, you know, and then at the last minute, the rope breaks and he gets away and he swims away and then they're chasing him and this, that and the other thing. And the last, and he gets home finally and he's about to embrace his wife. And you know, something's weird because... You're getting this extended, everything else has traveled at sort of a, a, at a realistic cutting pace, but you get overlap of him running towards her and running towards her. It's extended in a way that, that contradicts the pattern of editing that's taken place. And then in the last five seconds, bang, the you cut to him being hung, the, the, the hanging completing and just, and just zooming out. And that notion of, you can live an eternity in an instant is where I have to watch myself. So my problem is generally not getting into the character's head. It's not just staying there and rolling all over the place with it. And, and if I edit things out, that's usually where I have to do it. So, so it's, I don't mean to, to, um, I know this is so, so you're writing a novel. So suppose, so I imagine part of the point here is how do you help people? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I would have to say that it's, um, it's, uh, it, it, that one is kind of, kind of a gimme for me. Um, I, when I sit down for the day, my difficulty is then being able to emerge from that and to do things in the real world. Um, okay. that's where my real difficulty is. I have just enough ADD that, um, that hyper-focus is a thing. And hyper-focus, of course, basically what that does is it makes it feel for me like the, the world I'm, I, I don't, I don't have writer's block. Uh, my, my challenge is that I am trying to, I'm, I feel like I'm not just drinking from a, from a fire hose. I'm drinking from a tsunami and I'm trying to get as much of it out as I can bearing in mind the fact that I can't put it all out. And yes, you can spend an eternity in an instant, but that doesn't sell books. Uh, so, so, um, these are, so, so I guess for anybody who's trying to get into it, here's a trick that that I've used when I'm when I don't exactly know how I start want to start. It's not writer's block. I I realize when I'm sitting down, for instance, at the beginning of a chapter or a scene break, transitions are very important. Whether it's because it's going from a different restricted third person point of view, or or it's because I'm changing, I'm, I'm changing a chapter. So we're going to a whole other, if you will, unit of the story, or a scene cut inside a chapter. Transitions are where you make and break, I think, experiences. Um, part of the part of the trick to keeping a reader in 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 place and in play is that they they feel like at the end of something, they that what comes next is going to somehow answer a mystery, uh, 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 you know, resolve a, an, an action in mid-course, something like that. Or there's, you know, somebody's asked a question or said something that is going to absolutely demand 
a response and and things are going to things are going to pivot on that so if i'm let's say that let's say that's what has me stuck what i'll tend to do is then go back to what i wrote let's say the last 500 pages and edit it because mm -hmm. by the time i edit that and i run up to the same place usually by the time i get there I know kind of how I want to roll ahead with it. I need what I find that for me, writer's block is not that I don't know what to do next. I, I don't know. It's that I need to immerse myself back in the world and I need to, you know, I would rather do a running broad jump than a standing broad jump. And that's really sort of the difference. So those 500 words are the, are the, uh, they're the, they're the tarmac. They're the takeoff route. Okay, so this makes me think a little bit of an interview I, I read with William Gibson where he said that every time he sits down to write more of a novel he's working on, he goes back to the very beginning and rereads the whole thing. Now, I feel like that must get arduous near the end, uh, but it makes me think of that running jump you're describing. Do you find that you edit a lot as you go as a way of finding your path forward uh, in, in a way you describe? Sometimes, sometimes, um, but most of my editing is, I'm not a discovery, well, even that's not exactly correct. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely outline things, but, uh, but I do not, I believe discovery in the sense of how people experience the world is and how they have a d discussion. Um, and my attitude is it's a, it's not, it, it is not an inviolable skeletal structure. It is a potential pattern that I'm going to stick with if it seems to be working well, but I'll, I'll definitely part from it. If I, if, if my instincts or I see opportunities in there, um, which I know a lot of people, then a lot of people who get committed to outlining, they really mm -hmm. want to stay on the outline. My attitude is no, I want to, I'm committed to the moment. If, if I did good homework about the way things flow, I don't really have to worry that I'm going to go totally off the rails because as long as the interactions are, 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 are genuine and I didn't, you know, that I didn't plot every little twist and turn of a conversation out, that's not what I do. I'll tend to, to say, well, here's, here's the issue and here are the ideas that are sort of put forth and here's how it resolves. Most of the time that's close. But a lot of the times it isn't. Sometimes it goes into entirely different areas because I tend to think of more things. I'll push, like in the book that I'm writing right now, I pushed about probably close to a third of what I would call plot intensive components into a later book because oh. I got to this book and I realized there isn't room and I don't need them. And, and actually it gives me, it, it's probably a little eater, easier for a reader not it not to have to go through that sort of dense material in one book but to actually stretch it out so i'm you know in that regard i'm i'm i i structure is great but structure should not be shackles and yeah and you want to have room me, for discovery you know yeah that, exactly right and i i don't so i don't feel that i need to do um you know, uh, Dean Leslie Smith does, uh, he, he has the idea of writing into the dark. And the, the funny thing is, and he would say that, you know, that you don't write with an outline, you just go, you just sit, sit down. Now, that that's, that's simplifying and generalizing. But for me, I kind of feel like I'm doing that anyhow, the structure, and I think it, it may just have to do with a personality sort of thing. I consider most structure in the world, inherently, um, it is eternally up for review as far as I'm concerned, regarding ideologies, belief systems, 
you know, the, the shibboleths of our culture, the, the way we perceive what we know about the universe, all of this stuff, as far as I'm concerned, is really, um, there are a lot of, you know, we have very few facts. What we have are hypotheses of extremely high confidence. He's usually, you know, because the Karl Popper, he's a, he's a philosopher of knowledge when you get right down to it, basically said, and I think he's right, the only, the only absolute fact you can have is a negative fact. His, his, the example would be, we say, well, the sun will come up every day, right? Sure is the sun coming up, except for the day maybe it doesn't because we're tidally locked or something. You know, the, whatever the case may be, you can only say for sure that if you propose a rule or a law or a constant, and it is then disproven by an event or observation to the contrary, now you have a fact. And the fact is, that is not a law. And Popper would say, that's the only certainty you have. So there's, so I live that. And a lot of people, I, I know it would drive them totally nuts. Um, and it takes some getting used to, uh, I, I would say in my own life. Um, but I, I was doing it before I knew what I was doing exactly. Um, I just didn't have much choice in doing it, which actually gets back to the whole God thing. Remember, I said I wanted to flag this. Yeah, no, no, I was right. Um, <laughs> when I write, whether this is fantasy or whether this is science fiction, and I do write, even it, people have sometimes labeled the uh, Kane Riordan series space opera. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I actually think that's kind of, uh, since space opera is what we would also think of when we see Star Wars, I would say, oh, no, 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 no. There are no capes, to, to quote Edna, <laughs> Edna Mode. Um, from the Incredibles, but uh, rather I, what, what I, so getting to the whole God thing, if I can't find a way to believe it, if I can't find a way to convince myself that this thing could occur, I can't, I can't write about it. I, Almost I, maybe I'm not more gonna, like a journalist than a, uh, than a God. Uh, there's a high degree of rigor under the hood, which, which is where it should stay. I mean, if people want to read the stuff that I, that, you know, if they want to go to, to my interviews like this, and if they want to see compendia that are coming out, they'll understand just how much brain sweat <laughs> is under the hood for some of this stuff. And that's true for the, for, for fantasy as well. Um, there's gotta be rules that hold up. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, that's in many ways what uh, this broken world and the entire into the vortex series is about. It's about um, what happens when the things we think are inviolable rules turn out not to be. And we discover that in order, because the people who have knowledge and who hold authority generally hold their authority because their view or their knowledge is somehow considered to be dominant, accurate, whatever the case may be. Well, there's a kind of innate difficulty there, isn't there? It means that Anybody who's got power and therefore has a particular narrative or worldview or set of facts, they've actually got a vested interest in keeping it the way it is. Oh, yeah. And that is frequently not the best environment for open inquiry. So, uh, so this is why when, I, when you say play God, I, I set rules out and the rules become God. And if, and, but then, then rules can change or facts, apparent facts can change. If you were to go into the third Kane Riordan book and look at the way that, uh, that craft get between the stars, which is, I had that checked out with somebody who works at Livermore Labs. 
Um, not that, you know, cause obviously if I, if, if it worked, if we knew it worked, then I, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be trying to get nebulas. I'd be on the list for the Nobel. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but he said, there's no contradictions here. And I was like, okay, good. I go. Um, it's very costly, uh, all the rest, but here's the thing. So if you look in, in these books, you'll find that I have a sort of map of our, our near stars. It goes out to like about 30, 40 light years. People like to say it's an intergalactic or, or even galactic adventure. And I have to say, au contraire, uh, <laughs> it, it is it is not even the local stellar cluster. But whatever, you're happy. Yeah. But it turns out that they did a, um, they got much better parallax measures in about 2012. They, they were working on it since about 2010. And, uh, and they came out and it repositioned a whole bunch of stars because parallax, parallax is how we know distance between from us to stars if you get it wrong the star is going to be in the same place in the heavens sure when you look observe it but it could be a lot further away or a lot closer well as luck would have it one of the central places where the ships go because it's kind of a, a natural turning yard literally as far as we know or knew mm. in space it wasn't anymore so true to my own standards i went back and i redid the map because the map had to be redone. That is, when I say hard science fiction, I mean what I say. <laughs> I love it. And it's it's, it's not a hard um, segue from that to something I really want to ask you about, which is your sort of origin story as a game designer, because the Traveler series may have had a little bit to do with uh, some of the things you're talking about. Uh, how did you find yourself in that world? Uh, by playing. Quite frankly, I mean, I was I, long before, long before, you know, gamers could say, look, we won. Um, long before people who write science fiction and fantasy can point to like the top five grossing movies, I think, of, of all time. And at least three to four of them are in the are, are in what the genre, which was once called, you know, a literary ghetto. So. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I was an early adopter um, and did not advertise it at the time because who would back then? But uh, yes, it absolutely did. Traveler, in many ways, Traveler really shaped me because it ordered the universe. And that, when, when I say, it goes back to this thing you were talking about, you know, was it, is it my career in academia, which had me approach some of this stuff? It's actually my history in gaming, because even then, because like I said, it was always about, can I believe it? Can I believe it? If I couldn't believe it, then I had a problem. Well, one of the things about Traveler was even though it posited things which at that time, even then, were a little bit questionable. There's this thing called energy density, which if you if you know about it, basically says there's a lot of stuff that's floated around, you know, in what's called science fiction that we don't there, there's not much basis for, for it because it kind of totally ignores energy density issues. Um okay. uh but uh traveler really ordered things. Um, it and it was interested in giving a very, very, at that time, plausible view of the universe, and that really shaped me. I wanted to, I wanted to know why things had the atmospheres they did. I wanted to know. I mean, long before before Goldilocks zone was a was a thing. Um, Traveler had this this you know had pulled out the the equations for what would determine a habitable zone. And, and we only knew fractions of that back then. It's much more complicated now and much more detailed. Uh, although I'll point out we have yet, of course, to visit one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
but this was for me very much a driver. And, and so all of that stuff I just said about, I really, I, I am, I, I'm a showrunner. Yes, but I ain't God. God is what is, there's too much in the universe to ignore that we, that we, we know or hold as, like I said, a very high confidence level. You know, when does water boil? Tell me, you know, tell me humidity and, and, and air pressure and, uh, and gravity. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an answer for that. And I, you know, and if you can bring it back to me and it's a different answer, I think that's science in action. Because then we've learned that you only discover by finding out where your theories are wrong, which is why when people hold on to theories for career reasons, we get in the way of, you know, talk to Galileo's ghost about that one. Um, <laughs> but the, but so this is where RPG really, really drove home the world building side of it. And on the action side of it, there is nothing like sitting in, at a table of four or five other faces to tell you when your plot is dragging. Yeah, yeah. When somebody's starting to think about what pizza you're going to order later, now you know, when somebody starts looking at their phone, like, yeah, it's a real, it's a real interactive audience, to say the least. I, yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm always the game master, never the player. I'm that guy, right? Yeah. So, what, yeah, I, I know very shocked. much. Call me shocked, Oliver. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, many, many, many things to that. And basically, I, the, my first game publication was I, I, I had developed the character class for, uh, for Traveler. Um, and I sent it in and it got published in the, in the house organ at that time, which was challenge magazine. They just, they just, um, they just stopped publishing journal of the traveler raid society, went into challenge. That was, I think, 1987, 88. And, and then I did a lot of writing and produced a lot of material for, for traveler Mm -hmm. twilight, 2000, 2300 AD dark conspiracy, a whole bunch of things. And, um, and that was very formative for me, very formative. Well, you mentioned the gosh. There's like three things I want to spin off of everything that you just said. I mean, you know, I almost want to just go for a complete aside for a second because you talk so much about um, pursuit of knowledge, but as it relates, it seems to understanding the rules, the laws of the universe. And I wonder, you know, do you find yourself drawn to really wanting? Is 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 it, is it purely a desire for knowledge, or is it also maybe a desire for wanting the world to make sense? God damn it, and being able to make worlds that make sense in your fiction, or am I no. just you know armchair psychology? You know, well. Nonsense? It's it. I I go back to that first thing I said. I don't want to go over the hill to complete the map. I want to go over the hill to see the new stuff. Fair, fair. Okay, so yeah, that's that's not total control then. No, 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 no. I you know, there's a. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. You know, thirty, forty years ago, everybody had ordinary people. But when the uh, the uh, the protagonist, who's played by Timothy Hutton, goes for he he survives. A boating accident that his much more physically capable, adept, socially, uh, you know, socially apt brother dies in, and he doesn't, and and he goes to the therapist played by by Judd Hirsch, and uh, and he says, and Judd Hirsch asks him, so what are you looking for? And Timothy Hutton says, I want control, and Judd Hirsch, Judd Hirsch looks up and says, Yeah, I'm big on control. <laughs> and, and and because I think the reason there, as we see, is control is the idea that you will ever get total control or anything like total control is an illusion. Um, and anybody, you know, there's a 
there's a bit of uh, I, I didn't grow up in a in a in a Jewish household, but boy, I relate to you know Talmudic Talmudic humor has a very very near and dear spot in my in my soul because there's you know that's where you get the joke, you know, you know if you if you want if you want to make God laugh, tell her what your plans are, you know, and it's it's um it's that sort of thing that that I just want to know what's out there. So I'm in 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 part um I feel a little bit that if we could define it all then we'd have to be different creatures. I think really we'd have to be different creatures to be able to live with it. I mean now what, right? Um so at least this creature does. So so that's uh no it's not about control. Not about okay, just not just like check on that. I was kind of curious. Love talking about yeah. the cosmos, but yeah. no, you're right. You're right. You're more exploring than trying to uh, hold it all in your palm, uh, which, as you say, is a futile thing that has driven many people around the bend <laughs> and often in power, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yes, um, it, it does. It absolutely does. I know this is um, that's one of the reasons why I say I think this this career, this 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 it's this calling, this avocation. Mm-hmm. Um, really chose me because there is a huge amount of cognitive dissonance and lack of closure that comes with a commitment to not saying, okay, I want to either, I want to know the final answer, or I'm going to treat X, Y, and Z as the final answer, which both have their, have, they're not great responses for people who are first committed to this, excuse me, the search, however you want to put that. Yeah, and it closes you off, of course. I mean, you think coming back to, you know, the way things you see them from where you sit, well, somebody's else sitting from somewhere else, these things you miss. And if you're rooted to your chair. <laughs> exactly right. Um, exactly right. Uh, so thank you for indulging that aside, uh, bringing it back to the game designing. Uh, world building to me seems the most clear cut intersection between game designing, uh, TTRPG stuff and writing prose. Um, and I she did mention a little bit of some other aspects, like having a good audience at the table. Is there anything else that you drew from that writing which you find useful uh, in prose fiction? Well, the, the, having the people at the table not only teaches you, first of all, if you're going to create a, a convincing world, um, you need to be not a terrible performer because you're populating the entire world except for the things controlled by your players. So, so it, it works that out. It, 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 um, assuming everybody in the world does not have the same voice, does not have the same educational background, does not have the same interests, is not, you know, is not driven in the same way. You have to be able to jump into all of those skins, if you will, and do a, and do a, you know, put forth a fairly convincing portrayal of them. Similarly, in, in the same way that, that, um, it's, after a while, when you when you see where you're losing people and when you see where you're not losing people in the course of a role playing game, um, it's not just I got to move this along. Um, it, it's a feedback loop that I think begins to t- teach you um, bigger lessons about structure, um, about how much exposition there really can be at any given time when. What, what sort of environment, what sort of headspace can you leave actually actually makes a person want exposition? And generally, the answer to that is 
well, damn it. I, why is that happening? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> when they <laughs> ask you know. for it. Yeah, when they, <laughs> when they ask for it in their own heads uh, or at the table, you know the time has come that now you can indulge in that. And you can, but you almost never, there's no such thing as cutting off too short. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because what yeah, you're no. doing is you're leaving bait on the hook for later. But if you go too long... And they wander away. You know, the, the bottom line is the what I would call the immersive trance of any good narrative. The trick is don't break it. You, you, the, 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 the trick is to stay there. And for me, and I think this is what I, that, that hopefully what's conveyed to my readers is, is when, I believe when you really are in God, right? And you're sort of saying, well, this is what I want to happen next. I really don't even do that. I kind of, I actually kind of put my my gamer hat on, I guess you could say. And I say, look, I've established some power centers that are, that are why, why do power centers exist? Because somebody at some point had a, a lot of competence and they clearly have enough competence or power now that they can maintain it. Otherwise they wouldn't be in charge anymore. And in essence, what I do is I say, well, I know what, what the, the, the main characters in the story I, I can see the world from their limited perspective. So they do X and Y and Z. I put on the hat of, you know, the threat force, if you will, or the ones who don't give a damn. And it's what they perceive. What are they doing? What are their objectives? And really, I, if I am not going to impose events on the situation and then find a way to explain them, I don't do that. I really sort of get what I'm given by what I've set up, because the moment you set a world in motion, it's like a bunch of billiard balls on a table. Track them out. There is a sort of social, cultural, political physics that is informed by usually the specifics of the environment. I'll give you an example. You know, superpower politics before the atomic bomb, superpower politics after the atomic bomb. A little different, yeah. Superpower politics, but the tool has just changed the playing field. This is what I mean. That's the sort of calculation that goes into me saying, okay, what is, you know, um, to, to use your television and your background, Oliver, what is the diegetic, you know, <laughs> component here? What is true to the full picture? What actually is in the scene, would be in the scene based on what you've established? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think it's also a healthier relationship when you are the game master at the table, right? Because I always try to put it to my players, like we're collaborating, we're having fun here. Obviously my role is different than your role, but you know, and to a lot of what you said, I, I think there's so much truth. And I think of pacing, you know, I've said to friends, mm. look, if you were watching a TV show and they spent 20 minutes on a guy trying to pick a lock, how fast did you change the channel? <laughs> so, you know, you gotta, you gotta put something in there really keep it moving. Uh, and, and the thing I really want to ask you about from what you've just put to me, um, talking about exposition, and when people really want it. And do you think maybe a problem a lot of people seem to run into with exposition, I think, is putting it as forward at the beginning. You know, it's, it's like, um, pardon me, it's almost like a cart before the horse thing, where what you were describing, I yep. feel, is exposition as payoff for ramping up interest and going, okay, now you want to hear this stuff. Whereas too often, people seem to view it as almost an onerous chore that has to be placed at the beginning of the work to be like, okay, well, if I'm going to tell you the story about Bill, who's hungry, I got to tell you everything about where Bill's from. And it's like, you know, <laughs> and that's where you get people complaining about the exposition. I'm like, would you, would you agree with that? Is exposition maybe working better as payoff? Yeah. And, and I think that, um, 
there's a major difference between I would say um, the 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 difficulty that a writer has that you don't have in in running a game of that kind of world building is at least the characters two things about the characters they're known quantities at least they're at least certain of they may have parts of their past they don't know about yet or, i mean all sorts of things like that but they have something on paper or you know they have they have demographic and physical data that, that and and skills and things that they're known quantities to some extent you don't have that when you open the first page of a book and um the other thing is there's automatic buy-in why do you care about the character you're playing because otherwise if they die you don't get to play anymore you know it's like and the, and the more you go the more you feel you've invested in the more you're there well now that thing right there the more you go the more you feel invested that almost happens naturally in any reasonable role-playing environment unless the unless your referee is really poor at the game you're going to have done something your your period you know going through the events and the places and the the decisions of the game actually has fleshed out the character for you and you're committed to that that's the thing that i think writers would be best best served remembering that because the character as you turn that first page for some reason has to catch us now if i start my series we don't see the character we don't see kenry orton when the when we all he is is he's been put into cold sleep or, or actually he's about to be put into cold sleep because because he was in the wrong place at the right time and you have these two clearly powerful figures who are and you know and they're com they're connected to terms and polities we know from today making this decision about oh my god you know this this is a freaking disaster he's too well he's 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 known enough that he can't just disappear we're gonna have to we're gonna have to cover this up ba, 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 ba. it's a very short it's a very short piece it's like about 1200 words you get a lot you know when it is you know where it is on the moon you know that he is he fell afoul of, of something having to do with power politics and that the and that the individuals deciding his fate at that moment don't like doing it not just because it's inconvenient but because this isn't fair but we don't have a choice so you've you know i've trailed a bunch of bait in the water you can't trail that kind of bait too long the next thing has to be the character you have to mm -hmm. see the character the next thing um but however you do it the thing is that you've got to make sure that the world is not what and this is why so to go back to to where you where you started the danger of exposition why does anybody care about a world until they know somebody who's in it until they've identified until it is a person's story I mean, James Michener, when he did his sort of like Hawaii and moon, you know, and he did all these, he, in, he, he loads in all this sort of geographic and, and, and plate tectonic histories and things like this. And, you know, and you get this, you get a real, it's a, that's really, it's a God view in the sense that what if you were a, um, a sort of, um, uh, almost an emotionless being watch. You know the hands the 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 sunsets fly by 
like like you know like uh, in 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 ultra high speed um you can do some of that but that 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 kind of book probably sells less well now than it did um mm. i do think that some that there are things afoot in the marketplace today which actually to some degree um it's not that we won't read that it's just that the the portion of the market because it's the it's the total pie right i think that there's always room for enough books i don't know that every kind of book can say that um mm -hmm. i think that in the same way that that television and what's going on in it the web all these things influence um audience patience audience interests um uh, the degree of work that an audience is willing to do to understand what's going on in a character or a scenario or things like that. Um, I could tell you for sure that, for instance, um, intelligence or, or police or detective procedurals, really good ones, generally have a, a, a narrower audience now than they did um, in, in, in times past. Um, and if you try to do them in a genre, that isn't, if you try to do that as I did in the alternate history genre, um, yeah, people, but, but in the final analysis, it doesn't have the right pace. It doesn't push the right buttons. And what we're getting is sort of what, what happened. It's now, it's what in cable back in the eighties was called narrow casting, which is if you go to the history channel in those days, which could have been called the war channel quite, quite accurately. Um, <laughs> if you get something there, which is only peripherally connected to what you go what people were going there for it's viewers are going to tune out people increasingly will look at science fiction they they they're looking at covers they are much more selective because they can be about what vibe they're going to get from the product they're going for this is changing i think the proportion of what we read how the the center of the bell curve receives narrative what they want what they don't want um, and it's a much bigger, it's a much bigger bell curve. So it's a much bigger pot, but it's also, it's the demographic of your average reader today. I, I mean, I haven't, I don't know what it is. I don't, I, and I, I almost am fearful to look at it, but I think it's a little bit different than it was, let's say in 1920 and 1960. And today, I think it's probably undergone some considerable change and that changes the nature of narrative. Well, uh, thank you for, for so much of that. I, 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 if I can just one last quick aside, then I'll move on to something more at the Cory writing. Just, just a quick for funsies. What tabletop role-playing games are you playing currently? Don't. If any. No? I don't. Okay. I, I, haven't, I haven't had a chance to play a, a tabletop role-playing game except for one or two times, I think, at a con. I sat in. I actually go to a thing called Traveler Con, but I don't play there. But it's a great place to, to sell books and meet people who have very, very... Uh, similar interests. I mean, it, it is um, um, traveler folks find, I think, the, as you were saying, there's a vibe. And it's not necessarily that you would read this and say, oh, this is the traveler universe. You know immediately it's not the traveler universe. But there is a kind of what I would call grounded accountability of technology, event, motivation that was present in, in, in travel. For instance, travel, most people don't know this, essentially the thing that started skills as a thing in role-playing. 
D&D didn't have skills until much, no, much earlier. later. Yeah. I mean, there were certain things which kind of, but, you know, traveler, uh, early traveler um, uh, scenarios involved trading, diplomacy, uh, exploring a new planet. And it wasn't about killing stuff. As a matter of fact, the, or, and this is one of the things I liked about it. And you'll see this a lot in, in my, in my fiction. People, there's a reason why people, and it's one of the things that I kind of did or tried to do in this broken world, which is that um, the idea of going off with weapons to seek your fortune and and that <laughs> if, if you start thinking about the presumptions of 98 out of 100 pseudo medieval sort of role playing games or 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 you know um even first person well swingers if not shooters although yeah. that sounds like a, 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 yeah that sounds like a, something a else sexual channel. Channel. Sounds from the 60s uh, maybe yeah right. <laughs> um swingers new pulp uh, yeah, yeah right. anyway, uh, sorry. <laughs> just like being there um at any rate <laughs> the uh that they they make it so easy both to kill other things but to then repair yourself mm-hmm. which which actually completely disconnects the the risk gain reward of most human beings and kind of encourages sociopathic behavior <laughs> yeah, if you've got nothing if you've got nothing to lose and the, they're made up anyway why not kill those hundred goblins instead of having a conversation well, uh, yeah. with them it's, they, they're they are they're they're mannequins um and uh, and i think this was one of the things you can see i think a consciousness of this to some degree actually going to star wars go to what to, to the way that droids became the great if you will masses of infantry in yeah. the in the, in what became movies one two three i'll enrage everybody here and it's like i'm i'm just the i'm the first three guy i'm that guy ah, well. old school <laughs> But I mean, one of the things that was clearly done is they asked themselves a question, I think, about what are we saying in a movie that's going to have, we really count on kids wanting to go to this movie, but we want to, but it's exciting to destroy things in droves. And so we have them say bizarre things and kooky voices like Roger, Roger. And, you know, it's like, of course, you know, not to take them seriously, except for, you know, anything that has consciousness, you know, how do you... How do you how do you push that aside? And that's one of the things that I try to deal with in this broken world, which is at the, at one level, it's a love letter to a lot of the conventions, but it's also a uh, a poke in the rib and even a critique. Um, you know, almost none of the monsters quote people have called yeah. them. They're not monsters. Nothing thinks of itself as a monster. Yeah, and. How, why are they that way? Where did they come from? You know, and if you read this broken world, you're going to find out that, um, uh, first of all, the, 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 the model of how you get ahead as an adventurer is kind of absolutely, um, debunked in, in the book. Um, it, and the idea, and the, as, as, as the, as the guy who was sort of the most simplistic in it says about midway through, you know, we've made more money and have gotten more stuff by actually killing people like us because yeah. that's who has the stuff. 
you know, and and they came at us because we were getting in the way of stuff that has nothing to do with what we thought were dangerous creatures, which actually, when you sit down and meet them, I won't say talk with them exactly, that isn't always possible, but you meet them, you kind of realize everything's just trying to live. And if yeah. you if you if you're going to leave that aside, I think you almost have to write a comedy. And I, the reason I feel that is because if you're if because otherwise what you're doing is saying, don't take this life thing too seriously. No, take the life thing really seriously. Sorry, you really do need to. Because because then to me, that's one of the fundamental. If you're going to start breaking rules in the universe, don't break the one that says that if a bunch of creatures, unless they're ants or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And even then, if something is constantly getting slaughtered in droves and it, it and and nothing about that encounter ever, ever works out positively for them, either they will, if they can decide, they'll decide differently. And if not, evolution will take care of them because evolution in action says that that species is not is is not productive it is not yeah. being it it has no way to reproduce itself because it's going to lose all of its resources so for me that has to come out of a fantasy in order for me to find the fantasy plausible okay so yeah i feel like i've been talking maybe around and adjacent to writing in a way although we have gotten to a lot of really cool craft stuff and thank you uh let's go into the beating heart of it and or what i feel is often the beating heart because when i do developmental edits for clients or with writers for a magazine I always kind of like to ask the same question. I'd like to put it to you. We can focus it on just this broken world or, you know, the Vortex World Series, or even expand it outward into your whole bibliography. I always like to ask an author uh, when I'm reviewing a story of theirs, what was the spark that made them think, you know, yeah, this is a story I want to tell. And frequently that's a thematic statement of some kind, a feeling they have about life that is very true to them. Uh, other times it can be just a compelling image or a cool turn of phrase, but a lot of the times I tend to get a statement about like something they feel very strongly about that just whether or not they do it consciously, it will find its way into their writing. If Goodreads can be trusted, you've written at least 63 books <laughs> or distinct texts anyway. Uh, is there a thematic idea or statement you feel strongly about which you find has recurred through a lot of your work, even when you didn't set out to put it in there in the first place? And um, maybe we could start by saying what, what, what is, we have, I think you've touched upon it a little bit, but uh, you know, what, what would be the, the key idea driving the Vortex World series, or certainly the first book? The almost uselessly general answer is a lot of it comes from a very similar place. And I've touched on that, which is the exploration. Um, that's a, but I'm going to leave that aside for a second and say that there's also a, um, there's also a concern usually with what makes a hero. Um, villains, are very useful, of course, if, if they're, you know, but, and, and they're, they're very easy to write because they usually get the best lines, you know, and they get to be the most quirky in a lot of ways, but a, a story that does not have a, I'm going to call it a moral compass or we want to define morality and what we want to include and, and categorize. Um, I think the question of what is the right thing to do, and maybe not even right. What is to represent honestly the difficulty of trying to answer that question, what is the right thing to do? Because as I told my kids as they were growing up, you know, they, they 
I said, I would, I would sometimes say, we're going to watch something that's a little bit different and it might be a little bit upsetting. And he'd say, why? And I said, because most of what you've been watching is that you've got right and wrong. You've got the right answer, you've got the good answer, you've got the bad answer. I said, a lot of times when you're an adult and the more important the issue and the more money or power is at stake, you're often forced into a situation where you are having to choose between the bad answer and the worse answer. And to me, that's an important thing to write about. It is important to not produce an overly simplified view of the world. Now, this, of course, could make people say, well, then, you know, why are you writing genre fiction? It's escapist. Well, I actually don't feel it's escapist, and that's not why I write it. I write it almost more, first of all, the questions we have right now are being adequately written about. I mean, lots of people are writing about the present, the near past, the, the immediately perhaps pending future. Mm -hmm. Give you an example. In, in, in the Riordan books, people tend not to notice this. And there's a reason, and I'm almost glad they don't notice it. First book, halfway through, it's very clear that one of the main power holders in that book, a, a, a German diplomat and the person in charge of the diplomatic mission, is there's a, an aside to the fact that, you know, she has a wife. And and it's it's not a thing, right? And you don't know the you don't know the ethnicity of people usually until much later, if it comes up in the same way that it would come up, you know, as as a bunch of folks are gathering for Thanksgiving and asking about each other's families, you know, where it's not it's not it's not a it's not a loaded question because we've gone past that. I think so. But what I do have in the books is issues of prejudice is issues of injustice. The things that I'm concerned with is, let's assume we get past where we're at today. Where are the possibilities or probabilities that this may occur later on? That for me is, is important. What's also important to me is how these things take place to begin with, which is when you get down to it, there are contending forces in the human heart and society in general of of altruism and egoism um, generosity and selfishness greed and and kindness um, and all these things are always in play and how we answer them and how we balance them in my mind is is really the hero's journey is not its events yes but to me, those events gather their gravitas from what they are resolving. And these are the important things where they are having to make decisions between the bad and the worst choices, because that's what our life is. And to me, I think it's really important to put people, believe, the characters who have that to deal with in something set 200 years in the future, automatically have certain things that we relate to as genuine. Mm -hmm. And this is the moment where I think that if you want, if you want escapism or something like that, I don't know, go and believe me, I'm not, this is, I'm not denigrating this. I mean, go, go see labyrinth, right? 
watch the movie <laughs> Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal or, or something like that. And yet even those ask certain questions when you get right down to it. But they, they spend more time on what I would call the, um, the novelty. The fact that everything you see is novel and interesting and different and it's a take and it's what if i was there what if i saw it? that would be so cool i always believe me that's why i write these things but at the end of the day we have choices to make and to and those choices to me are have always been deeply important and it's part of the reason why going over the hill is not just simple wide-eyed wonder because going over the hill can show you some really difficult stuff. What we're doing right now in the internet is kind of going over the hill and we're discovering that 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 the 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 idea that this was, you know, you go back to Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan said that when everything was going to be everything was going to be interconnected and we'd be in a global village and this would be so much better for us. We'd all be interconnected. Well, we know how that worked out. Is some <laughs> of that true? Sure. This 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 podcast is an example of people sharing ideas, getting it out there. Maybe three people listen to it, maybe 300,000 people listen to it. But the idea is that we have been individually liberated. We The idea that there are such, such few doors of access to pass through and they're controlled by such vested interests, the internet has definitely done away with that. It's also at the same time done away with, when you think about it, we didn't think of fake news. Was a lot of news fake? Yeah, sure. But the real difficulty of the internet, when you think about it, is there are no, so many sources that cherry pick different pieces of information about different topics that I think the biggest problem we have is knowing what is a source that we can, how do we go to a source, trust it's balanced, trust it has interrogated its own assumptions, which actually you can find because it will generally point out the weaknesses to and, and the uncertainties of its own assertions. And if you can't find that, or if it takes you four hours just to find somebody's commentary on subject X that you trust, you know what most people are gonna do? They're gonna actually go back and watch the person for 40 minutes trying to open the lock because that <laughs> probably is more interesting. It's at least not, it doesn't have the same sense of futility because it's it's lost in the weeds you know and it, yeah. it comes hand in hand with that with with the with the inclusivity also comes this fact that we now there is we can't tell how do you find the wheat in the chaff and is some people yeah I, I often think about the chaff. challenge being less finding i mean I, i'm hardly the first person to say this but the challenge of um not being finding information but navigating I mean, you talked earlier about the fire hose and the tsunami i mean i don't even know what the word you know, <laughs> it's appropriate beyond tsunami to describe uh, mm -hmm. our options of discovery information now, as opposed to yep. even just when I was a bit younger, you know, I mean, I just turned 40 this year and I'm always kind of grateful that I spent some of my life pre ubiquitous internet, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, cause yeah, it, uh, it feeds into how you see the world. Um, but it's so easy to spiral off. Of course, uh, speaking of tsunamis and, and, and sources of information and everything, I want to, um, shoot. I had a so heroes thing. asking why and yeah. the responsibility of the hero to asking why and and how would you uh could you tell us a little bit as, as we're nearing the end here uh how you express those ideas 
in this broken world, in the Vortex of World series. You know, we talked about it a little earlier, I thought it was quite fascinating about how this kind of almost very colonialist impulse of like, I'm gonna go over there and kill some stuff and get some stuff. And you you are obviously doing something deeper <laughs> with that impulse uh, in here. Well, our protagonist is somebody who is is brought up in, I guess you might call it one of the most, things were much more organized in this world and a little bit more advanced at a certain time. It's not like they went through a sort of dystopic you know, technology loss. They were never at the industrial level, but let's say really advanced Roman kind of understandings and, and also some of the kind of technological uh, innovations that were present amongst the Chinese and, and uh, Byzantine Empire even. Um, not that I invoke them, but you, you know, it's that kind of, you can see there's a mindset that is, that is pre-industrial. It's trying to become industrial in the way it looks at the world. Um, and, uh, they have retracted and now they have sort of, um, they can protect their own borders. And we have a, a, a young man who just so happens growing up, um, <laughs> I say young man, but one of the things he learns along the way is that the notion of I, of um, binary sexes and readily discernible and 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 um, fixed sexuality is actually another thing that is vastly misunderstood in this world, and it's a it's 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 not a social thing; it's a physical thing. Um, I mean, it's social too, but it's it it roots no pun intended given for those who've read it, know where it comes from, it roots out of a misunderstood, very related species. Um, and he starts out thinking, I'm going to be a great general because generals hold great power in my, and, and, and my, and, you know, my father was clearly, you know, important and, and, uh, bah, 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 bah. and along the way, he's actually, he's not, he gets, he's got great scores. He is absolutely the most promising individual but is made first a, a, the assistant to a librarian. And then he becomes the assistant archivist. And then when he thinks, finally, now I'm going to, I'm old enough and I'll go and I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll be, you know, one of the, I'll be on my track as an, as an officer in one of the legions. He's made a courier. Couriers are a little different though. These couriers are not just, they bear messages back and forth. It turns out that when something shows up in the world, something, um, a bit of knowledge, whatever that is, they go to secure it. So they are, so for them, being a courier is sometimes delivering information, but sometimes securing re, re-emerged information. Um, and, uh, and then he, again, you know, when he says, okay, I've done my three years here now, sure. Now I've done, uh, I've made everybody happy. I'm going to be in one of the legions. Nope. He's made something called an outrider. And this is a little bit more like intelligence gathering. And it's what it sounds like borders going to other keep an eye on what's going on in, the, in near and far from from home in the process of this he begins to realize there's a lot of stuff that i was told in this sort of safe bordered environment of what's called the consentium that really is not what's going on in the rest of the world it is this is a very very if you will, if you want to use the word privileged, but I, I would I would say also or entitled. I mean, these are all sorts of words, but just a safe environment yeah. with all the possibilities that safety actually, in, in, you know, it, it, it allows and impels very often more education, longer lifespan, this many, many things. Um, and so 
but as in the in the course of his wanderings particularly as a courier he starts he, he falls upon comes across things like what we're talking about you know there are these hordes that come out from certain places that uh, that most humans wouldn't want to live and they they uh, they they raid and then they're beaten back and there's a weird thing they are able to come back in like eight years despite the fact that they've taken what should be casualties at a level which would mean even though they even though they 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 produce in 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 greater they have multiple births they have a shorter gestation period they have a shorter maturation period but the thing is it's like nothing he, he looks at it from the calorie standpoint they don't take enough in and those areas where they live do not produce enough sustenance for them to actually just power through this many more bodies to what is would would largely be a, a losing proposition by now why the hell is this going on so he's never heard of malthus because it doesn't exist in this universe but He's, he's, he's done some basic Malthusian sort of equations. And what he gets is some interesting, if ambiguous answers and no help from where he's from. And the further he goes to find out about, because he knows, it, because he starts asking questions. So if that's the case, he says, what else doesn't make sense? No one has ever answered because there are clearly something like giants but they have enough of an understanding of biology and anth and zoology that he kind of comes away asking, how do they stand up and not pass out? You know, there are certain creatures that are, are able to do that. They're almost all quadrupeds. They usually have a sort of diffused coronary system. So, okay, that cardiac system. So I get it, but what, and again, and it just gets worse and worse when he goes down. Mm -hmm. It's it's, and ultimately at the end of the first book, he is going to have to truly leave home. That's all I'm going to say. But let's say into the vortex should tell you that in a way, it is often the case that the, the least promising place to ask a question about where you're from is where you're from, which is, <laughs> which is part of the reason to go over the hill. And he goes over the hill. So that yeah, is you know, absolutely. I, I we've had these recurring motifs in our discussion today. Oh, yes. Over the oh, hill yes. And, and seeing where you sit. You know, it's it's working nicely. I dig it. <laughs> Sorry, pardon me. <laughs> I just, no, I I, um, I I very much appreciate that because that's probably what people. Um, that's one of the things that people find. I think people who aren't as interested in that still also like. I write. Okay, I'm going to say it. I write pretty good action sequences. If you go through a film degree and you make film, you learn a lot of stuff about what makes a good action sequence and what kills an action sequence really quickly. Um, again, I think uh, of pacing uh, and cutting pacing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, and people, I think, I think the other thing is if people don't care about anybody who can be immersed in a world who that doesn't worry too much about following its own rules and hasn't thought too much about whether the real, the rules all hold together may find my stuff more about worlds, a little too much about those, those, the, the, if you will, that kind of world building than what I do. But for anybody who has that kind of approach to what makes them believe in something, I find that the more people want to be immersed and that for them, immersivity is connected with not reality, verisimilitude, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> the, that the more, the more they 
come along for the ride. I, I, I would say that from what I can tell, my audience is not so much unusual for its size, but for the, quite frankly, the proportion of really, really devoted fans. Uh, because once people find me and kind of like what I do, um, they're pretty, I, you know, let's say that no matter what genre I'm working in, I see a lot of the same names coming up more and more and more on Facebook. So, um, so that's just, you know, this is what I yeah, do. I mean, People find it. Always that's lovely. Um, yeah, of course. And it's always, always lovely to get uh, new faces in. And I'm thinking to that end, you know, I, I have my, my reading habits have shifted dramatically over the years for a variety of reasons. I won't bore you with, uh, certainly when the pandemic began, I found myself reading largely very short action driven sword and sorcery type stories because I don't know why, but funny enough, in 2020, especially, I really could use some escapism <laughs> and not thinking too hard about why things are the way they are. Funny how that went. Um, however, however, to kind of almost turn inside out, I, I, I look at uh, what we were saying a minute ago about escapism. Like, I almost think it doesn't exist in a way because there are stories that focus more, yes, on thrills and chills and, and oh, hey, look at that crazy thing versus, hey, let's get into the guts of this. And why is it? And how does it work? And, you know. Um, but no matter what you do when you're writing, what is writing made out of but choices? There's always choices being made. And so to me, yeah. even the most, you know, cotton candy feeling story is making choices about who is in that story, who wins, quote unquote, mm -hmm. what is mm -hmm. winning, who gets to be at the forefront, who gets to be at the background, and so on and so forth. So you're always saying something. And I think um, you know, what's kind of fun is, is going back and forth between maybe not even escapism and uh whatever the opposite of that would be. But um, intentionality, the degree of intentionality, and what I hear a lot in talking with you uh, over this uh, discussion of ours is a high degree of intentionality coupled wisely with leaving yourself room to discover. And that to me is very exciting, even as someone who has not been reading a lot of terribly deep world building uh, texts the last few years, because I think this is a guy who is thinking hard about what he's doing, but he's leaving room for discovery, leaving room for surprise. I think there's something for people who enjoy either end of the, the sort of spectrum. Uh, that I'm, I'm making up on the spot here between, between you know, hey, let's punch the thing and hey, let's think about the thing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it sounds pretty exciting to me, man. I'm, where's, where's the Vortex World series going in the sense of, you know, is it going to be three books or, you know, or, or, or how, how what are your thoughts on the future of it? So uh, three books are contracted. The second one came out uh, November. The one thing that's unfortunate regarding it, and we're trying to get this taken care of, is there were some things that went through the grid and there are not audiobooks for it. And that's a that was a very very quite frankly it's a hard hit to the series because um, because every you know audiobook is just a, a major component of your of your sales these days. But um, it, the third book will be written. If it, it's gonna if the if if there is nothing past the third book, I'm going to have to resolve it some other way because I have come to see uh, that uh, what I thought I could get into three. Um, I, can you jam stuff in? Sure, you can jam stuff in. But um, one of the other things that can bother me, me as a reader, about certain, certain narrative constructions is what I would call the implausibly rapid process of change. You know, it's mm -hmm. like something happens and within a year and without, it, 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 it's just people, people polarize faster than they generally do forces or agreements are marshaled into different camps faster than they normally do. 
um, outlooks, the outlooks of the people apparently in the street change faster than they usually do. And one of the things with both of these series, but particularly probably the Cameron Jordan series, is that there is a lot of change very fast in terms of calendar time. I mean, the, the, it's been now about eight years since the, since the calendar really started and, the, and the, the stories were told in a detailed fashion. But really, the stuff that started only like, the stuff occurred that five years ago is only starting to make its way through the system. What's happening is the cutting edge because Kane, more than anything else, is really a first contact specialist and the only one that exists because they didn't, you know, how do you how do you give a degree in first contact when you when you start out not even knowing that there's anything else there to contact? You sort of learn it on the way. And, and his big complaint is you need to make me replaceable because because it's too important. Yeah. You gotta you gotta you gotta do more. It's not fair to it's not fair to me, but it's really not fair to you and the people you represent. But the thing is that as they are finding as they're coming into contact with people and and intelligences and mysteries that are out there, the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of awareness is racing very far ahead of what's actually going on back home. And to me, that's a really that's another important part of what I'm doing to me. And it's also a, a verisimilitude issue. If you really look around you, I mean, has everybody caught up with the internet? Hell, people who are actually very comfortable with the internet, who are maybe 30%, really, really strong internet users, I would say probably 90% of them are having a total meltdown over, over you know, chat GP and, yeah. and AI in general. Not saying that in fact, we don't need to be concerned with it. I'm simply saying that the lag time of social adjustment is frequently ignored as a factor in a lot of it makes me think of something you often hear which is you need to remind yourself that uh, twitter is not real life you know if you, you get stuck in a certain corner of the internet uh, oh or certain discussions on the internet such as say about ai you can very quickly fool yourself into thinking this is what everybody's talking about yeah <laughs> and everybody's yeah. connected and it's like meanwhile there's somebody you know probably not too far from you geographically who doesn't even have i don't know electricity <laughs> like you know yeah well, that's really true. And, and, if, and if that's true in America and there are places where it is and it's true, I don't know that it's so true, let's say, in, in, in economies where the, 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 the per person uh, GDP uh, has allowed what I would call a major rollback on significant poverty. Uh, so so let's, let's leave out Scandinavia for a moment. But I mean, you want to now talk about places like outskirts of Metro Manila, Karachi. Uh, Kuala Lumpur. I mean, places like that. You are, you are absolutely talking. You're talking about people who are absolutely at the bleeding edge of, of technology and internet and how these things are going to fuse or not and how they're going to monetize or not. And there's somebody who is, who's still worried about the fact that, that terrace farming is going to hell. And what are they going to do about it? You know, same planet, different worlds. And to me, that is an under frequently underappreciated thing. And, and actually what I'm doing is rather than talking about how it manifests today, I'm talking about how it manifests in the future, which in so many ways, I think is I, I portray what I would like to say, a future that's full of hope, but it's also full of peril. And it depends mm -hmm. on and that's the issue of the responsible choices between the bad and the worse which has to be informed at least by knowing the difference between the good and the bad 
and and understanding that your your in your your knowledge is not perfect and but you have to own all of the consequences of your decision even if it was in the final analysis the right decision you have to own it even if it's a just war you kill somebody you kill a nazi you could i i i shrink back a little bit when somebody says yeah kill the nazis i mean it's i i'll go with I'll go with what Captain America said in the first movie, where the, the doctor says, so why do you want to kill Nazis? And he says, I don't want to kill anyone. I don't like bullies. Bingo. Bingo. That, there's a lot. I know it's a very simple exchange, but there's a lot of moral depth in that question. And the person who makes that distinction is not necessarily commonly found. and this is what I mean by moral compass. So you're always going to see a moral compass in my books. If I write an anti-hero, and I have, they're generally, they depend upon the moral compass for the useful contrast in the final analysis. Um, so, so, and I, I'm sorry, I knew I, I sort of have dragged us off track yet again. Um, I excel <laughs> in this, if you haven't noticed. No, sure that's fine. I mean, if, I, if it wasn't uh, fascinating, I, I would pipe up <laughs> to interrupt. Yeah, except for now, um, your listeners may be seeing, ah, where's a guy opening a lock for 40 minutes? I, I got to get yeah, there. Yeah, we got to go. No, 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 you're not, you're not opening a lock for 40 minutes. Don't worry, man. Um, but yeah, like, why don't we, you know, we, we, I think we've gone to, uh, across a lot of very interesting territory. I think anyone who listens to this will feel they know you better, know more about your craft, and know more about, you know, what you've got coming out right now. So I'd say that's a, that's a slam dunk. We could always talk more, and I'm always, I would be very happy to. But uh, why don't we find this moment to, to tie it off? Absolutely. We've already talked a bit about what's you know coming down the pipe. So if people want to find you online and learn more about you and your work, where would you suggest they go look for you? I do have a website. It's moribund. It's moribund for reasons of both not being able to retain people and and, and other things. But I also find that, that websites are not really where people are going. Now. I find that uh, Facebook, I have a group page on Facebook which is, I have two actually. One, um, I have, I think, 1,200 most recent count on, the, on the, um, the fiction group page. If you want a place to go chat where you don't have to chat, but, but might want to, there. I have another one, which I call uh, Perspectives from Another Planet, because I kind of feel like I am sometimes. So the other one is just me saying, I think this is a very interesting bit of news, and I'll throw it out there. Okay. So Facebook is the place to find me in those two places. You can find me on um, on my website. Probably the best thing there is if you want to get on my mailing list. There's a good link there. My primary publisher is, is Bain Books. And uh, anybody who wants to track me down, if those other things aren't working, you can certainly go through through that through that uh, avenue. Um, I Now I'm writing in pretty much every genre, except for I don't write superhero. And uh, probably, I don't think anything of my stuff would really qualify as YA or mid-grade. Um, and uh, haven't done paranormal romance. But uh, I've done post-apocalyptic. I've done fantasy, more the epic side. Um, if you, for, and for instance, uh, if, um, if you like Ellie Modisette, you're probably going to like my stuff, I would say, because he also does a lot of that really, really accountable uh, sort of sort of work, uh, I feel. I admire his work a great deal. Uh, obviously, hard science fiction. Yes, I have written military science fiction. I don't think, I, I'm not ex-military. Um, I've been around the community an awful lot. Um, and, uh, and, and alternate history. 
1632, other things. So I would, I would say that if there's a particular flavor of genre you like, you may find that I have that in my, uh, in my uh, speculative fiction ice cream truck and can give you a, at least a small serving of everything, if not a bigger one. All right. Well, sounds good, man. I'll, I'll probably uh, bug you for those links. And what I'll do, listeners, I'll put all that in the show notes so it's very easy for you to find and uh, go exploring. All right. Well, thanks, Chuck, man. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I really feel like I've learned a lot about you. Your Absolutely, work. Oliver. It's been great meeting yeah. you. It's been great meeting you. And let me know when it's up. <laughs> I'll make sure that lots of people find it. All right, man. Thank you so much for your time. Thank all you. Right. So, I'm writing a novel. Features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritingandnovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Charles, and I'll see you soon.